This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The House of the Spirits. City of the Beasts. Island Beneath the Sea. Those are just a few of the titles that best-selling author Isabel Allende has written in her 40-year career as a novelist. She sold more than 70 million copies of her books, which have been translated into more than 40 languages. Her latest book, The Wind Knows My Name, explores the lives of two children 80 years apart. One of them is fleeing Nazi-occupied Austria in 1938, and the other is fleeing danger in El Salvador in 2019. Isabel joins us after the break to discuss her latest novel. We talk about her life experiences and how those have influenced her work. We also take a look at the role books play in helping us navigate the complexities of our modern world. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get right into it by meeting today's guest, Isabel Allende. Welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me in the program. Well, before we explore your latest novel, let's rewind a bit back to 1973. That's when a military coup led by General Augusto Pinochet overthrew the Chilean government. Your father's cousin, Salvador Allende, was president at the time he was killed in that coup, and you and many others were blacklisted by the new government, and you fled to Venezuela. How did the experience of being a political refugee shape you and shape your life? I think I wouldn't be a a writer today without that experience. Losing everything, the family, my home, my country, my job, uh, and living in Venezuela like a political refugee, was an experience that was very hard. And um, I think that one of the hardest part of it was that I couldn't find a job in anything that I knew how to do. So for years, I did all sorts of odd jobs to make a living and support my family. Until finally, I started writing a letter to my grandfather that became my first novel. And that gave me a voice. I wouldn't be a writer today without that need to tell the story of everything I had left behind. When did the letter become the novel? When did you realize <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is yeah. more than a letter? 
Yeah, I think that very soon as I st started writing, th the first pages were to tell my grandfather that I remembered everything he had ever told me. He was dying in Chile, and I, the idea was just go in peace. I remember everything. And so I started telling the story of my great aunt Rosa, who died in mysterious circumstances. And then as I started writing more and more, I realized that it wasn't a normal letter. But I didn't stop. I kept on writing. I could only write at night and during the weekends because I, I had a day job. And uh, by the end of the year, I had 560 pages on the kitchen counter. Didn't look like a letter anymore. <laughs> so I knew then that I had written a book, but I didn't know what kind of book it was. Was it a chronicle, a memoir, a, a novel? I didn't know. Hmm. I, I want to pull in a thread there. I heard you say, I told my grandfather it was okay to go in peace. I remember everything. In the process of, of writing that letter that became a novel, what did you discover about the power of, of memory? I think I discovered something about the power of writing. Mm. That um, everything in my head was confusing. It was just, it, it wasn't organized or framed in any way. And writing gave order to the chaos of life. And that's what I learned. And many years later, when my daughter Paula was dying, she spent a year in a coma. That year was a long, dark night in which I couldn't remember anything that had happened day by day. I just remember the horror of the, of the whole thing. But then when I sat down to write about it, I could separate events. I could frame the pain and the grief. It didn't invade all my life. I could understand it and accept it. I think the same thing happened with my first novel, which was an exercise in longing. And I could frame that longing so that I could deal with it. Is it also a way to contain that grief, contain that longing in a place that feels maybe more more manageable? Yes, it is. But, but also it helps me to understand because I can see cause and effect. I can see the relationship of things and people. Um, it, life becomes clearer to me. You published The House of the Spirits around the age of 40, and we heard from so many of our listeners that uh, that novel means a lot to them. A member of the 1A Text Club writes, The House of the Spirit is one of my favorites by Allende. The first time I read it was in high school, and it was the first time I read magical realism. I was fascinated. I'm Puerto Rican, and the fact that it was from a Latina author just struck a chord with me. And another writes, I remember reading The House of the Spirit in 10th grade and being so completely blown away by the depth of the book. It struck a deep chord with me. As a child of Chilean parents, I felt proud that our school system introduced us to such incredible Latin and female voices. I've loved all her works, but the very first one I read will always be special for me. What does it mean to you Wonderful. that your yeah that your your book has your books have had such such an effect on people globally? I mean, when you think about the fact that the books have been translated into over forty languages, do you ever pause and? <laughs> 
just sit no. with that? <laughs> I don't sit with that at all. I just love the process of telling a story. And, and that's my life. I just sit down in front of my computer before it was a typewriter and, and tell a story. And the way I imagine it is like putting together a puzzle. There are events and, and times and characters and little pieces here and there of stories that I have heard, things I remember, things I have experienced, and then put all that together in a, in, in a, in a pattern that makes sense. Mm. That's what I love. And because I write about relationships and emotions, my books translate well because the, the story is common to every human being. People in Kenya feel the same way as people in Finland. And so they, they can relate to those emotions and those feelings and those relationships also. You said when you were riding the House of Spirits, you were in a season of your life when you'd had trouble finding work, after you'd moved to Venezuela, and then you achieved this major global success with this book. How did your life change? Not immediately, because I was living in Venezuela. I had found a job uh, administering a school that I, I worked 12 hours a day, so I was really, really busy. And, um, and the success of the book happened in Europe. The, the book was bought in Europe by, by, in every language, and I didn't pay attention or I didn't know. I didn't get the first checks <laughs> until, until almost a year later. So it didn't happen to me immediately. And in a way, in these 40 years of writing, I feel that every day something comes to me like, like a gift. It's, everything is bonus. I wasn't expecting anything. I wasn't even expecting that my first book would ever be published. So just seeing the, the physical book was such a thrill. And from then on, everything that has happened to the book and to me has been a gift. Is there a specific gift you associate with your first book, with The House of Spirits? Yes, I felt that I had a voice, that I felt that until then, my life didn't have a purpose. It was, I was just coping day by day and uh, very unhappy in my marriage, unhappy with my work. My kids were growing up and, and having their own independent lives. I wasn't going anywhere. I was just stuck some, in some place. I was 40 years old, and I would look at my life and say, I haven't done anything. And then the, the book gave me writing, and writing gave me a purpose. I'm also hearing you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm hearing that you also experienced perhaps a liberation of sorts through that process of writing the book. Am I hearing that correctly? Well, I think that I, because I could organize the, the, the past in a way, I, I think I could adapt more to the fact that I was living in exile. Oh, I, I, I sort of came to terms with the fact that, that I had lost my country and I had to make a new life and that everything that I had in the past was contained in that book. I had not lost it. 
Now, as I said, your writing career spanned four decades, and in that time, you've published more than two dozen books. The latest is called The Wind Knows My Name. That's out tomorrow. How does the book explore the complexities of of being a refugee or an asylum seeker? Uh, Because I have been both, I have been a a refugee and an immigrant, I know the difference. A refugee is someone that leaves everything behind and gets out, out of despair. They are either running for their lives or they are running away from extreme poverty. Uh, In my case, it was a military coup. In other cases, and that's what's happening to most Central American people who are coming to the States, is because they are running away from the maras, from the narcos, from corrupt governments, and from poverty as well. So uh, that's, that situation is very different because you really don't have a choice. You have to get out and, and you most probably will be received with hostility. And it will be very hard to make a living and to have a life. And you will always be looking back, wanting to go back to your place of origin. An immigrant is usually a young person who looks forward to the future, who wants to change their lives and make a life somewhere else, and they don't look back. So the experience is very negative in one case and possibly very positive in the other circumstances. So um, I can relate to that, and my foundation works with refugees at the border. We We have several programs and organizations, but in the last four or five years, or five, five years at least, we, we have concentrated mostly on uh, the border in the southern border of the United States, especially after the policy of separating the families and, and seeing thousands of children in a desperate situation. Well, the book focuses on the lives of two children, both fleeing their countries. There's five-year-old Samuel, who's growing up in Nazi-occupied Austria. Tell us a bit more about him. Well, Samuel is is separated from his family, put in a train, and sent in in a program that was called the Kinder Transport, that uh, at the time, uh, England received 10,000 refugee Jewish children from Europe, from from mostly Germany, Austria, Poland, and Hungary. And um, the parents had the horrible choice of either either keeping the kids with them with the risk of of them being all sent to concentration camps or send them away. And they sent them away. And those children, 90% of them, never saw another member of their family again. They lost them forever. Now, this man, Samuel, 80 years later, when he's 86 years old, the pandemic hits. And by then he has had almost a perfect life. He's a musician. He he is a musician of the symphony. He has a very controlled, uh, risk-free life that he feels is a very successful life. And uh, when the pandemic hits, he's 86 and he's stuck at home. He can't get out with his housekeeper who happens to be from El Salvador. And there's a moment in the book in which he, he has had time during the pandemic to, to examine his life. And he realizes that the worst sin he has committed is the sin of indifference. Mm. And he says, this is a capital sin, and sooner or later you have to pay for it. But then life gives him a second chance, a chance to redeem that sin. 
And, and that comes in the form of a little girl called Anita, who is a blind girl that has been separated from her mother at the border. And this is based on a real case, by the way. And, uh, and so Samuel takes her in. And he does because he can remember the trauma that he experienced at, at that age. So the girl and this old man establish a bond that is um, nurtured by mutual trauma. What do you think this novel says about how, in some ways, all history is, is also present with us? Well, history repeats itself. We don't learn the lessons. And, uh, and if we don't pay attention, we do it again. And in a, Samuel sees in Anita exactly what he lived, and that's 80 years later, in another continent, in another context, completely. Um, but my book, however, in spite of the fact that it deals with a tragedy, uh, it focuses on the people who are helping. In Austria... And in, in the border now, in, in 1938, as well as in 2019. We always hear the bad news. We hear about the matters and about the human crisis on the border. And we hear about the corrupt governments and the horrible policy of separating the children and the children in cages. But we never hear about the thousands and thousands of social workers, psychologists, volunteers, 40,000 uh, American lawyers, mostly women, working pro bono to represent the kids in court. So that, that's what my, my book is about. It's about those people because I'm always fascinated by those people. Well, one listener in our text club writes, The House of the Spirits is my favorite. Her work has informed me about the strength of women. I'm Jen White. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. Tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. 
Now let's get back to our conversation with author and philanthropist Isabel Allende. One of you wrote from the Hex Club, as a native Californian with pictures and memorabilia from my grandmother that go all the way back to the 19th century, I read Isabel's book, Daughter of Fortune, with much interest and appreciation for the picture it painted of Northern California during that time. Vivid characters and plot much enjoyed. And another of you shared this, her books are so easy to lose yourself in, especially when read in Spanish. I love The House of the Spirits, Eva Luna, and Daughter of Fortune. I love Clara and her family in The House of the Spirits. Isabel, your work has always highlighted strong female characters and and feminist ideas. In the 1960s, you co-founded and wrote for a feminist magazine in Chile called Paola. And for several years of that publication, you reported on things like um, drugs and and sex work. What was happening during that era that led you to launch that publication? Oh, Chile at the time was a very conservative country. And um, we, we lived in a society that was very Catholic, as I said, very conservative. There were no women's magazines that would talk about any of the subjects that were really essential for women, like uh, the situation at work, contraception, abortion, divorce. There was no divorce in Chile, and so forth. And so this magazine, for the first time, touched on those subjects. And it was incredibly controversial. In many households, it was not even allowed because it, it brought forward ideas that were already old in Europe or the United States, but very new in Chile. So it changed the society. It was a very, very important publication at the time. Do you remember a conversation or an experience you had that helped you understand the impact of Paola on Chile society? Not then, but much later in life, we have looked, and I say we because we were four women working there, very young at the time, all of us less than 30 years old. And in time, in, in the decades that followed, we have seen the, that it became an icon in the cultural life of the country. And the impact that we had, we couldn't measure it then. We have measured it much later in time. Mm-hmm. And every time that, that the, the feminist movement or, or the women's movement is um, analyzed or studied in Chile, there is a reference to Paula and the work we did. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when I think about y- you leaving Chile and, and feeling like you lost your country, and yet it's clear you also made a strong imprint on the country as well. How, how, do, you, how do you think about that today because I, because I, at the time i got out i i was 35 or 34 years old i i got out in despair with no money to a country that i didn't know to start a new life and and chile lived 17 years of dictatorship mm-hmm. with censorship nothing was published in chile that was worthwhile talking about during that time and we didn't know uh, at, until much later they, the, who we, we had been and what we had done. Mm. And I say we because I, it's not the royal we, it's these other women and myself. One of them, Amanda, uh, had to leave also. She went to exile to France and never returned. And she was an extraordinary journalist that did an extraordinary work for the few years that the magazine existed. 
You mentioned your daughter, Paola. Uh, again, she died in 1992 at the age of 29 from porphyria. That's a, a rare genetic disorder. To what extent have you been able to draw on your experiences as a mother uh, of two young children um, fling Chile, fling violence when when you create the relationship between Anita and her mother and the wind knows my name. I, I try to think if I would have been able to separate myself from the children, like Samuel's mother had to send her child away, would I have done that in Chile, send my kids away? I don't know if I would have been capable of something like that. But I can imagine the horrible pain of the parents. And because I have seen it through the foundation at the border, I know how it feels. And it was very easy for me to, to portray that in the book because it's such a, such a vivid and heartbreaking and raw experience that it's great material for a book and a terrible thing to go through. You talked about Samuel coming to the realization that while he'd had a good life, he'd also been indifferent. And why was that an important question for you to tackle in in this novel? Because I think that many people, they are good people with good intentions, most of them even religious people, who cannot put themselves in the shoes of someone like an immigrant or like an asylum seeker. Uh, and it's an exercise in indifference. It's easier not to think about it. When we walk in the street and we see a homeless person on the floor, they're begging or not begging, but homeless. We keep walking. We don't want to know we don't want to get involved. And that's an exercise in, in indifference. Sooner or later, we pay for that. Where, where, do you, where do you see us, I suppose, as a society, maybe not individually, but as a society, paying for that indifference? We have become a very strange country. I have lived here for more than 30 years. The country is completely polarized. High percentage of the population is heavily armed for the for some kind of war that they are expecting or preparing for. Um, there's no dialogue. There's no, um, no vision of what kind of country we want in the future. Democracy is at risk. So we are living in these times, and I, because I... I write historical novels and I research a lot about the past. I see many symptoms of things that I have seen before in history. And that, that uh, is very worrisome to me. But I am an optimist and I think that uh, if we are alert, if we are aware, if we are not indifferent, we can save the country, we can save democracy, we can save ourselves. You, you say you're optimistic, and you're also a student of history, and you see how, over time, we don't tend to learn the lessons of history. So what's at the root of your optimism? Because in my 80 years, I have seen the curve of evolution going always up. 
it's not a straight line. It, it has backlashes. It goes in, in a zigzag line. It's the same with feminism. People say, well, ha, now we have a backlash in feminism. And now women are losing their, their rights in many places. Yes, I've seen this before, but the curve is toward more democracy, toward more evolution, more inclusion, more diversity, uh, more knowledge. Today, we know more people know more than ever before in history. Today, any, any kid that is eight years old with a computer knows as much as Leonardo da Vinci knew in his time. So, so it's a fantastic time that we can use it for a better world. Guillermo emails, I'm a Chilean who's been living in the U.S. for many decades now. When translating Spanish language texts for my kids, it's tricky to get the humor across because sometimes there are terms and phrases that are very Chilean and not directly translatable. Given the number of languages your work has been translated into, how hard is it to let other people effectively take your words and translate them into other languages? That's a very good question. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the only translation I can read is the English. And uh, I work very closely with the translator. And we both agree that the difficult, the most difficult thing to translate is irony and humor because they are cultural. They belong to a place. What is funny in Chile is not funny in the United States. It's probably politically incorrect in the United States. So it's very hard to translate that. And the other languages, I have to trust the editors. Let's see what they come up with. But I am sure that the story translates, maybe not the nuances. But the story is always very simple, and that translates. What is the connection between your novels? Is, is When you think across all of the books you've written, do you see a connecting line? I see themes. Uh, I see death. Violence, love, loyalty, resilience, uh, a sense of justice, of organic justice that always comes up. And, and uh, the, I have a sort of obsession with power with impunity. It is what, what power with impunity can do, the damage it can do. And, and that you see it everywhere. You see it in the police, you see it in, the, in times of war, you see it in the family in the patriarchy, in the so many times, there is the the victim has no voice and no way of getting out mm. of a horrible situation. Look what's happening, for example, today in Afghanistan, where the the population is starving, where women cannot get out of their homes. Women who were lawyers and 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 doctors are under a burqa, locked at home. Uh, you you see the power. Of, of a few people who control everything and and that and the impunity of it they are not accountable it's just devastating I'd love to hear you you speak a little bit more about your understanding of what you called organic justice that was an interesting turn of phrase what do you mean often, the judiciary system is very unfair to the poor, to the people of color, and, and, and privileges those who are the privileged in the society. But there is a human justice that is 
not the law. It is the way things turn to make the world a more fair place. Um, for example, I have some stories, some short stories. One of the stories is about a terrible man who is who has abused his wife, his children, who is a horrible guy, and, and he abuses everybody. And then the two women involved in the story get together, and they manage to turn things around and revenge. They get revenge. But it, the, the law would never punish that guy. He would, he's a patriot. He would go through his life with total impunity. But in, in, the, in the core of his life, there is this sense that he has lost everything. He's not loved. He will die like a dog, alone, abandoned, and despised. I love that idea. <laughs> I just love that idea. <laughs> Well, I want to make sure to read a few more comments we've gotten. One of you shared this. As a young girl, I connected well with the trilogy that includes City of the Beasts, Forest of the Pygmies, and Kingdom of the Golden Dragon. I also love the House of the Spirits and Eva Luna. For ages, I've connected to my Chilean roots and to a magical world through her words, and I've grown older learning from her newer publications. My mom, grandma, and I have read most of her books, and we enjoy talking about them. So here you have a person writing in, talking about this cross-generational experience. Well, first of all, that shows my age. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I think there's something so powerful about your writing's ability to talk across generations. Well, that's what I was talking about at the yeah. beginning, that I talk about emotions and relationships. And that doesn't change at all. I mean, if, if you go to the times of Shakespeare or the times of Charles Dickens, or, or it's always the same thing. It's the same emotions and the same relationships that we, we talk about the same things. I'm not comparing to myself to them, please. I'm not, this is, I'm not arrogant. <laughs> well, I, I want to know what you hope your writing career means for the women who come after you because we've only got a couple of seconds left, but I think you've had such a big impact on women writers. I think that when The House of the Spirits was published 40 years ago, very few Latin American women or women writing in Spanish had any international impact or distribution. And the, that book opened the way for many, many women writers. And that is because the publishers realized that more Women than men read fiction and buy fiction. There's a market out there. And we want to read what other women's writers have to say. Well, that's author and philanthropist Isabel Allende. Isabel, it has been such a pleasure speaking with Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank We're... you very much. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.